You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Six million new cases of human papillomavirus are reported each year in the U.S., making it one of the most common sexually transmitted diseases. The approval last year of the HPV vaccine for use in females ages 9 to 26 years old has led to great controversy. The debate continues about the practical, scientific, and moral concerns that have been roused by the new vaccine. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine, and one of the authors of a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine on HPV vaccine. Welcome, Dr. Alt. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alt, since the HPV vaccine was approved by the FDA last year, many states have initiated legislation mandating vaccination in school-aged girls, causing controversy in parts of the country. What is your take on this? It's been interesting to watch this. You know, this is the first vaccine for a sexually transmitted infection, uh, so it's not surprising it was controversial. Certainly, we want to give it at the lower age, the age range, because those women, those girls have not had a prior exposure. So, you know, a lot of the backlash, I think, has been because we're looking at girls so young. And as I mentioned previously, I have daughters of my own in that age range. So I'm not immune to those concerns. You know, I haven't run for public office, and so it's a little hard to get my arms around this, but I'll give you opinions. I mean, I think my personal opinions I think the best thing you can say about mandates is that they work for lots of things, for car seats or for seat belts. Not that long ago, as an obstetrician, I was having people tell me to send my postpartum patients home 12 hours after they delivered, and there were lots of legislative mandates to uh, allow women who've had a baby to stay in the hospital later. So unfortunately, in women's health, we resort to mandates sometimes for that. Certainly, I think the negative thing about the mandate is it's really taken the spotlight off of why we have this vaccine. Texas, the state that seems to be in the news the most along these lines, has the sixth highest rate of cervical cancer in the United States, if you go by states. And so it would have been nice to hear in one of those news stories somewhere what else they're doing besides mandating a vaccine for cervical cancer to fight their obvious problem that they have with their very high rates of cancer. So, and I don't think I heard that in any of the news coverage that I looked at. I was afraid people were losing the big picture. Right. It sounds like people are focusing on the fact that this is an immunization against a sexually transmitted disease, but leaving out the cancer. Most sexually active people are going to run into this virus. I mean, I think that that's very obvious in the last five or 10 years of epidemiological research. And so we have to assume that most 11-year-olds are eventually going to be sexually active. So I, I think that needs to get injected into these public conversations as well. Right. Right now, these mandated vaccination programs do include an opt-out for parents to exercise. That leaves parents with questions about making a decision here, and they'll go to their physicians with those questions. What kind of guidance can you offer physicians who are going to have to field these questions from parents? Well, actually, if you look at the literature, there, there have been lots of studies along this lines where you go and offer parents or offer adolescents a vaccine for sexually transmitted disease, whether it's human papillomavirus that we have or some theoretical vaccine, let's say gonorrhea or HIV, generally about 80%, pretty consistent number, think that those vaccines are a good idea because it usually correlates with what the patient or the adolescent believes the severity of the disease is, and so cancer in this case, and whether or not they believe in vaccines in general is the other 
big determinant of that. So I think, unfortunately, the group that may be most reluctant to get the HPV vaccine might be reluctant to get a lot of other vaccines. Right. So a reluctance to get vaccines. And and what other concerns are you hearing voiced by parents about the mandated HPV vaccine? You needed to have a way to pay for the vaccine if you were going to mandate the vaccine. We, We just had our meeting of the annual clinical meeting of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists on the way to San Diego, I sat next to a physician from Virginia, and Virginia, I believe, is one of the states that does have a mandate, but they're only getting reimbursed $11 from Medicaid for this vaccine, and the cost, of course, is much more than that, an order of magnitude more than that. And so uh, some of those details needed to be worked out, obviously, before we went to the mandate. Right. This is very costly. I did read somewhere that the cost to vaccinate every girl in the U.S. has been estimated at $720 million. Can you at least assure people that the vaccine is cost-effective? It's worth it. That has been looked at very carefully, and this actually looks like a very cost-effective vaccine. And, and I think a lot of your listeners will appreciate this. You know, we spend about 3 or $4 billion a year in the cervical cancer detection business. That's pretty similar to what we spend on care of HIV-positive patients in the United States, so no small amount of change. And, of course, a lot of that is trying to track down women with abnormal pap smears. For somebody in my office that has an abnormal pap smear, the price of a colposcopy, a biopsy, follow-up test is going to be 500 to $2,000, $3,000. So you could see pretty easily, I think, just, you know, I'm not a healthcare economist, but you could see pretty easily why this might be a cost-effective vaccine. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine, and we're discussing the HPV vaccine and public policy. You had mentioned Texas, which got a lot of press around this, and their legislature recently passed a bill against Governor Perry's executive order for an immunization program. Aside from concerns about efficacy and long-term safety, some objectors believe that the HPV vaccine would encourage promiscuity. What is your reaction to the debate going on in Texas? Well, there's data that you can look at to answer those questions, and it comes from several different ways of looking at the question. First of all, you can go out and ask teenagers who are not sexually active, why aren't you sexually active? And the answer you get, the most common answer you get, is it's against my personal morality. Answer number two is usually fear of pregnancy, and then other things are further down on the list. So fear of STDs, for better or for worse, doesn't seem to influence teenage behavior. You, you might hope it would, since that they're a group that's particularly vulnerable to all STDs, but it doesn't appear to really do much as far as that goes. And certainly, if you're vaccinating your teenager with the HPV vaccine, what a wonderful opportunity to impress upon them your personal morals, which will, of course, influence their personal morals and their decision-making. You can also look at studies that are peripheral to this, but look at things like contraception or condom use in at-risk adolescent populations. And if anything, I think those findings are that the teenagers that are in the intervention group usually take less risk because they realize uh, what the stakes are as far as acquiring a sexually transmitted infection. So the literature would actually say the opposite, I think, overall, at least what's been published prior to this. You know, I hear a lot of doctors when that question comes up, you know, we don't expect our patients to run out and step on rusty nails after their tetanus booster. And so it's almost 
you know, counterintuitive. Right. There's just a lot of misinformation and controversy. And I suppose you'd mentioned that part of it's just it's normal because you're introducing a new vaccine and that in itself is controversial for some people. But the fact that the vaccine targets a virus identified as an STD, it seems to just make it loaded. Maybe in the next few years, we can have a conversation about whether we're going to have a herpes vaccine. So I think it's important to get some of these issues ironed out now, uh, certainly, because I hope the future is bright for vaccines in this area. Do you think that HPV, the HPV vaccination, will soon be a routine part of school-age vaccination programs? Well, it's recommended universally from that 9 to 26 age range. So certainly there's a recommendation out there. But as I said previously, the best things about mandate is that mandates generally work. And so uh, I think another thing that was a little unusual about thinking about mandate for this vaccine is this vaccine just hasn't been out very long. So I think that was another maybe strike against, you know, the having a mandate for this particular vaccine. Mm-hmm. So you do support mandating it? You know, I have mixed feelings because I don't want to see a backlash against the vaccine when I know it's so highly effective. But I think generally I'm positive about it. You know, I mentioned statistics state by state here in Georgia. We have the 10th highest rate of cervical cancer. So certainly we have all three of the populations we discussed earlier that are at risk for cervical cancer. So I'd like to see us have some discussion about how we're going to reduce, you know, cervical cancer and get care to those who need it. And and this would seem, you know, primary prevention would seem to be a key element. Interestingly, um, New Hampshire's voluntary immunization program has met with little resistance. And apparently it's so successful that healthcare providers there report facing decisions about who should be given the vaccine first. Yeah, there's a wonderful article about that in the New York Times here in the past few days. And certainly seems like they've gotten over a lot of the controversy as far as the vaccine uh, goes. And I think mostly through just clear-eyed thinking about public health was the seems to be the take-home message that I've gotten from New Hampshire. What do you think about the success of a voluntary immunization program and about triage issues that face healthcare providers when a vaccination program becomes so successful that supply becomes scarce? Well, that has seemed to be a common theme the past few years for vaccines. I think we went through that with the meningococcal uh, vaccine and maybe Prevnar. Again, you're getting away from my area of expertise a little bit, but you know that's a difficult decision. Let's keep in mind we're at the very beginning. Hopefully, you know the vaccine that'll improve. I hope over the next few years. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Alt. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.